faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. I was talking to a friend a couple weeks ago about his goals for 2017, and he said he didn't really care for New Year's resolutions. He said, what's the big deal with January 1st? Why not make the change today? And I could see his point. You know, he's right in a way. Why wait till tomorrow to make a change that you need to make today? And yet, nevertheless, when we look at our calendars this morning, they say 2017, not 2016. And many of us say, praise God, that 2016 is in my rearview mirror, and I have a new year ahead of me. I heard some amens out there about that. So there is something good in the start of a new year, and it's entirely right and proper to make plans for it. And for the Christian, we know God's mercies are new every morning, and thus every year by his grace we can start afresh resting in him and working for him we are created in christ jesus for good works god has particular good works for us to carry out that he has prepared beforehand as an expression that that we belong to him and some of those good works will happen this year just think about that And it bears repeating that though we have not been saved by good works, we have been saved for good works. So I'm excited by New Year's Day, and I hope you're excited to evaluate your life and set your hand to the plow and get to work for the glory of God in the unique ways only you can carry out. In your family, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, given your circumstances, however God has determined And here's the key question I want you to ponder this morning as we look at this text. What needs to change in your life, maybe in the next few weeks even, that would position you by God's grace to live more fruitfully for Him in 2017? What needs to change? What is encumbering your growth in godliness? What are you neglecting that you ought not? What kinds of practices would inflame your affections for Christ and get you outside of yourself and eager to serve other people. Like Tom talked about a couple Sundays ago. How might you train yourself for godliness? That's the singular phrase I hope we all leave today pondering. So I have a decided emphasis on action in this sermon because that's what this text calls for. Just look at all the verbs. Devote yourself. Do not neglect the gift you have. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them. Keep a close watch on yourself. Persist in this. 
He talks about toiling and striving. Train yourself for godliness. That's verse 7. Depending on your translation, you might have train yourself to be godly uh, or discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Or the King James, exercise thyself unto godliness. Paul is talking about expending some holy sweat in the pursuit of godliness. Does the Christian life involve effort? You bet it does. Just look at this text. It's it's undeniable. But godly effort is never divorced from the knowledge that we are already loved and accepted in God, in Christ. In fact, our efforts are fueled by this knowledge, right? That's how it works. So uh, to set the stage here, 1 and 2 Timothy are the last of Paul's letters. He's an old man. He's giving some final words of instruction to his young apprentice, Pastor Timothy, uh, who is there in Ephesus, particularly in regard to his leadership in the church and the proper functioning of the church, so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. That's chapter 3, verse 15. And you might say, oh, well, then these instructions are for the clergy, right? It's pastors that are called to such spiritual exertion. Not so fast, not so fast. What Paul writes, he intends for Timothy to put before the brothers. Verse 6. He says, command and teach these things. Verse 11. He says, set the believers an example. Verse 12. The point of an example is to imitate it. This word is for the whole church. God is calling the believers who are gathered here today to train yourselves for godliness. You can break the passage into two sections. Uh, Verses 6 through 11 and then 12 through 16. Uh, The first section establishes the principle of the value of godliness and the primary command to train yourself for godliness. And the second section is specific ways Timothy should carry this out as a pastor. Uh, But again, there's much for us to learn in terms of our own application. So I'd like to begin with a definition of godliness and then move to the value of godliness. And then finally, how to train yourself. For godliness, So it, it's pretty much a what, why, and how kind of outline. So first, what are we talking about? Definition is helpful. Look at verse 7. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. So there's a contrast between what Paul calls irreverent, silly myths and godliness. Don't be silly. Be godly. What's, what's he getting at there? Well, in the preceding paragraph, Paul warns about those who will depart from the faith, teaching that marriage is forbidden and you shouldn't eat certain foods. That's chapter 4, verse 3. And Paul says, essentially, that's nonsense. It's demonic, actually. There was a group of people there in Ephesus who had wandered away into vain discussion. This is a chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So these were proud people. They loved to speculate. They talked endlessly about genealogies and myths. They had an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. That's chapter 6, verse 4. They peddled a health and wealth gospel, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. That's uh, chapter 6, verse 5. They wanted to be rich. So the common denominator in all of these falsehoods is a misuse of God's law. Uh, In some ways, they overextended it. In other ways, they ignored it. And they just made up some weird stuff as well. 
So here Paul tells Timothy, don't have anything to do with that kind of teaching. It is a waste of time. That's not what godliness looks like. Then what does it look like? Well, if you did a word study of Paul's use of of this word godliness, you'd see it's both theological and ethical. It concerns both belief and behavior, your inward life and your outward life. And, And the two should correspond. So here's my definition. Godliness is a reverent loyalty to God rooted in gospel belief and displayed in holy behavior. I'll repeat that. Godliness is a reverent loyalty to God rooted in gospel belief and displayed in holy behavior. So let's unpack that. The primary thing to see is that godliness is rooted in the gospel. Godly living is motivated by the constant reminder that I am right with God because of the life and death of Jesus Christ. That's our starting point. In Christ, God is for me. Do you have that confidence this morning? If you are in Christ, God is for you. Jesus has taken your sins upon himself and credited you with his own righteousness. Paul says back in chapter 1, verse 15, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul never gets over the gospel. He he can't hardly mention anything without talking about the gospel. It's interwoven in every letter he, he, he writes. And he never utters a command concerning Christian behavior without reference to the means by which that behavior is possible in the first place. The gospel of Jesus Christ. We have to be made right with God before we can live right for God. So the rigorous pursuit of godliness is not legalism. Legalism is the false view that our good deeds make us commendable to God. Legalism says present your righteousness to God and and if you have enough, you'll be accepted. That is a total nightmare to try to live out. but, But people do it, don't they? And it's so sinister and subtle. It's not just a doctrinal error that you could spell out on a piece of paper, you know, in a sentence. It's a whole web of attitudes and practices and ways of reading Scripture. Tim Keller says the legal spirit is marked by jealousy, oversensitivity to slights, metallic harshness toward mistakes, and an ungenerous default mode in decision making. You know it when you see it. It, it. Legalism has a certain smell to it, you know. And, and, and the church is not immune to this sickness. A Christian can deny legalism doctrinally. He can spell out justification by faith alone like nobody's business. But he can still practically be, be, be living like a legalist. And one flavor of legalism sees godliness fundamentally as the denial of particular pleasures. Don't get married don't eat chocolate, don't have fun, right? That's what these people in Ephesus were basically saying. Is that godliness? No, it's not. It's not. Listen to this astounding statement, chapter 4, verse 4. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Isn't it fascinating that Paul would write that And then immediately give this strong command to train yourself for godliness. Maybe your perspective of godliness needs to be challenged. Is godliness fundamentally about the denial of particular pleasures? 
No. Does godliness involve the the denial of sinful pleasures? Well, yes, it does. How do you know the difference? You need training. You need training. A good servant of Christ Jesus is trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that he has followed. That's verse 6. So it means being well acquainted with the gracious heart of God in the gospel of Christ. This is what creeps in. So some of us begin to question God's heart towards us. We're not so sure that he means to bless us. We begin to think that he's withholding his love until we do a good bit of work first. So we wearily take on the burden of obedience. But, But true godliness looks like this. If you know you are already fully loved by God, you make it your aim to please him by obeying his commands. You love God. You want to know God. So you obey God. It's what you want to do. You have a new heart now. Your affections for God lead to action for God. So ask yourself on this first day of of 2017, how do you really feel about God? Do you trust his heart towards you? Is he really good and gracious? Or do you think he's withholding his blessings until you demonstrate your worthiness? Are God's commands burdensome to you, but you go on shouldering them to gain his approval or people's approval? Do you obey because you want to avoid danger and to have a good life? You know, I want to be squeaky clean, so, so I basically have a good life, you know? What really is driving your Christianity? And think about your relationships with other people. Are you overly dogmatic about secondary matters? Do you get red in the face when somebody disagrees with, with your own pet issue? Do you have a mentality for the marginal or does the gospel of Jesus Christ hold center stage in your life? Paul says in chapter 1, verse 5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's what godliness looks like. And again, you know it when you see it, right? A godly person is unmistakably holy in his living, but warm, and and approachable, easy to be around, hospitable. You know you've been to a godly home when you leave spiritually challenged and yet filled up and encouraged at the same time. So remember our definition. Godliness is a reverent loyalty to God rooted in gospel belief and displayed in holy behavior. It's the aroma of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what it is. It's what makes godliness so good because God is good and supremely so in the life, death, and resurrection of his son. And so that leads us to the value of godliness. Paul says in verse 8 that godliness holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And then he says, that's a saying you should hold on to, Timothy, verse 9. Remember that one. It's trustworthy. Everyone should accept it. Godliness is of value in every way. So it doesn't just bless you in this life like going to the gym three times a week would bless you. The value of godliness actually carries over into eternity. When you run hard after God, you are sowing seeds of eternal joy. You are storing up treasure in heaven where where moth and rust cannot destroy. And And I hope by now it's crystal clear that we do not get into the kingdom by our good works nor do we maintain or secure our salvation. We don't add to our justification or our standing before God through our godliness. 
Nevertheless, our good works are absolutely necessary evidences that we have come to know God. So when I see myself progressing in the faith and others in the church affirm that, I am encouraged. It shows I'm on the right path. I am headed home. Some of us might be fighting to believe that this morning. It could be that when you look at yourself, you only see a spark of faith. Not much there. But Scripture says a bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. So God keeps us and God is at work even when we can barely see it. So press on with your mustard seed of faith if that's all you have this morning. And surely many of us could could testify to, to being through seasons like that. Godliness holds promise for the life to come. And Paul says it's of value in this life. How could it be otherwise? God is good and does good in all that he does. So tethering yourself to him, aligning your will to his, striving to live a life for his glory, this will bring blessing in this life. Because you get to see more and more of his glory and thereby be transformed. And I know for now it's through the eyes of faith, but but then it will be face to face. That day is coming. But we do get glimpses of it now, don't we? We do get glimpses of it. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That's 2 Corinthians 3.18. There is always more of God to know and enjoy and be changed by in this life. So godliness holds promise personally, but also for the sake of others. You look down at verse 16, persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So godliness, it's like a light that spreads out and fills a room. It, 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 go, it goes out and it gives of itself. And it causes shadows to flee and it drives back evil and it puts in its place security and comfort and goodness and love. This is what a life lived for the sake of others looks like. This is what God has done for us in the sending of the Son. And so just imagine that we get to model this love in the lives of other people. Godly people pick up the broken pieces of shattered lives wrecked by sin. Not sanctimoniously. They're just rescuing others the same way God has rescued them in Christ. It's a spiritual reflex to serve. When you see people in need, you just move. And it takes training, doesn't it? You've got to practice this. And it has a cumulative effect that changes a family tree. You might be coming from very dark places in your own family background. By faith, you can alter that trajectory and affect the lives of people not yet born. Just think about that. So... 250 years from now, there's a conversation happening in a kitchen. There's a, there's a teenage girl. She's sitting at the table reading her Bible. And she asks her dad, Dad, how did I come to love God and to treasure this book? And her dad says, we can only credit that to the grace of God. But it's also true that God uses means. Sweetheart, our faith was handed down. Don't you want to leave such a legacy? That a conversation like that could happen 250 years from now in your family line because of your walk with God today. That's something to think about. Godliness is the great privilege of making other people happy in God. 
chapter 6, verse 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. Great gain. So maybe you can't pass on a million dollars to to a future generations, but you can pass on godliness. And that's why it's so sad that many of us, maybe unconsciously, think of godliness as kind of boring. Like maybe you yawn at the word, right? It, you think of it as something either for kids or for the elderly. You know, we want Johnny, the little boy, to be, we want him to be nice and godly. Or el- the elderly are supposed to be dignified and reserved and respectable. You know, that's, maybe you think of godliness as a, um, only as a life of desertion and denial, like a really spiritual hermit living in a cave, you know? You fail to see that to be truly happy is to be holy. And to be holy is to be truly human. Growing in godliness means we are becoming our true selves. If we are created in the image of God and that image has been marred by sin, then seeing that image restored by the power of God should be something the Christian longs for. God said, be holy as I am holy. So we were meant to be holy people. Holiness is something a Christian should thirst after. So far from a stoic-like drudgery, godliness can be exhilarating. You're working out your salvation. You're, you're seeing yourself grow and change. You're helping in the, in other people in the church do the same. You're finding new holy desires in your heart that were not there before. You're finding a greater disgust for sins that you once tolerated. And all to the greater praise of God. Godliness is of value in every way. Now I use the word exhilarating. And up until now I've said nothing about suffering. So I don't mean to communicate that this journey of sanctification is just going to be a walk in the park. We do pick up painful scars along the way. And we do still live in a fallen world. And the devil is, is out for our ruin at every, every turn in the trail. But even our hardships get swallowed up in hope, as Nick put it on Christmas Eve. When you cling to God through suffering, when you daily decide to live by faith in Christ, even though you can't see how things are going to turn out, those very afflictions are preparing for you an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And you'll find that God uses your very trials to be the actual instruments that will promote growth in your life. Godliness holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. For to this end we toil and strive, verse 10. So that points back to verse 8. Paul and Timothy toil and strive for the value of godliness and seeing others attain it. That was, that was their whole missionary enterprise. But there's another underlying reason. You just keep reading the sentence. We toil and strive because we have our hopes set on the living God. So there we see it again. It's succinctly put and beautifully put right there. You've got to get the order correct because if you don't, this is probably one of the biggest objections to discipline in the Christian life, if you get this order wrong. What is the ground of our striving? What holds it up? What comes first? Our hope in God, our Savior. You see that? Effort is a fruit of faith. Resting in gospel freedom should ignite godly industry. That's how it should work. So we come to the final point. How, how do we actually do this? How do we train ourselves for godliness? Well, listen to this guy, Wilhelmus Abrockel. You'll probably forget his name. Not a big deal. He's a Dutch theologian in the late 17th century. He wrote a big fat book on, on these themes. <clears throat> but he has a little list. 
Reasons why believers do not grow as much as they ought. Number one, they presume upon grace. Number two, they doubt their conversion. Number three, they are discouraged by their progress. Number four, they conform themselves to the world. And number five, they are lazy. If you doubt your conversion or you're discouraged by your progress, that can be remedied by remembering your justification. By faith in Christ, you have been declared righteous. So rest in that. Rest in that. Laziness cannot be addressed solely by preaching the gospel back to yourself. It requires getting up and smacking your head with a blessed two-by-four called action. Action. Christianity is beautiful in this way. So we're not called to inward meditation all day long. Our, Our faith is much more practical than that. By faith in Christ, we are called to stop doing sinful stuff and start doing righteous stuff. To put it plainly. Abraco, he says, many Christians are hindered in their walk solely by laziness. We indeed desire to be in an elevated spiritual frame and to grow as a palm tree. But we are not willing to exert any effort. And thus we also do not receive it. Therefore, Christians, to the task. You might have heard the line, let go and let, and let God. I, I've just never been helped by that statement whatsoever. It's just not helpful. Not if you want to grow in godliness. Maybe uh, cling to Christ and put to death a bad habit. You know, that doesn't, uh, you couldn't put that in a bumper sticker, but might be more true to the Bible. <clears throat> I remember when I was in Croatia, uh, my boss asked me to fill out a PDP, it's a personal development plan, um, and to send it back to him. He, he lived in another city about eight hours away, and honestly, my first reaction was, you know, more paperwork for the supervisor. You know, here we go. Um, but it was a chart, and you had to think carefully about your weaknesses in various categories. Your weaknesses and, and what you do about it, actually. You know, what books are you going to read? What people are you, are you going to seek out for counsel? That kind of thing. And so I did that. I, uh, I, I'm so glad. I, I, I've actually called this, this man and told him, thank you for making me do that exercise. Uh, because as I pushed through that, I, I shared what I wrote down with another brother, and then I actually followed through on my plan. I began to change. God met with me in a very simple, mundane, personal development plan. It was the first time it really hit me that I was supposed to be proactive in my own growth in holiness. And I was a missionary of all things. I had been a Christian for several years, been reading my Bible, but all I can say is something new started that day. And so praise God, he set me straight. Listen to J.I. Packer's definition of repentance. He says, Repentance is grieving before God at the dishonor one's sins have done him and forming a game plan for holy living. Forming a game plan for holy living. That's what I'm talking about. So godliness is not just something you meander into. Uh, That's how you get into falsehood. You remember the people in Ephesus, they wandered away into vain discussion. But living a godly life requires intentionality. It's like keeping a garden. There are some things in that garden that need to die. And there's other things in that garden you want to live. You you want to see thrive. There's a prior generation of Christians, they called this mortification and vivification. Just say that ten times straight. Vivification. When you mortify something, you kill it. And when you vivify something, you enliven it. You animate it. You you, you cause it to grow. So godliness involves putting sin to death, 
You're uprooting thorns and weeds because they're going to take over the garden if you don't. John Owen, he said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. But godliness also involves discipline in the positive direction. There's good plants that you want to see grow and thrive. So you take care of the soil and you, and you fertilize, you plant good things and you water. So I'm talking about reading your Bible, meditating on it, setting, setting aside time to pray, talking to other people here about your walk with God, coming to worship, serving other people in need. Godly people are disciplined people. They practice these things. You see that in verse 15. And if you look for it, you'll start seeing mortification and vivification all over the New Testament. Uh, if you look at chapter 6, verse 11, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. So there are things to flee. And here in the context, it's the love of money and envy. But there's also things to pursue. Godliness, faith, love, gentleness, steadfastness. And elsewhere, Paul will talk about putting off the old self, putting on the new self. So you see the two directions there. This is what it means to train yourself for godliness. And I'm going to give you some examples. So I had a seminary professor. He traveled a good bit. He did seminars and he spoke at churches. So he was at airports a lot. And uh, you know those, those little bookshops you can swing by, grab a sandwich and a water bottle. There's also a lot of books and newspapers and magazines. Well, he, he, he shared openly one day in class that uh, he once had the habit of picking up magazines in those shops and looking at stuff he shouldn't look at. And you're never going to believe what he decided to do. This is brilliant. He decided he could no longer go in those shops. Isn't that revolutionary? It's amazing. He just cut it off. He didn't have to pray about it for hours. He just, I will gouge out my eye. I will cut off my hand. This is done. I, I'm, I'm, I'm finished with it. Just like that. That's putting sin to death. I realize though some sin patterns are vicious and deeply embedded. It's not just like flipping a light switch. I get that. But I tell that story to emphasize the practical, action-oriented nature of putting sin to death. It's, it's crucial. So get a brother to hold you accountable. Get rid of your smartphone if that's what you need to do. But see, you'll have some folks, they'll say, man, all these laws you're drawing up for yourself, that, that's so old covenant. You know, you're beginning to sound like a legalist. All you need to do is to remember who you are in Christ. That does not square with what Paul has written here. It's immature, it's misguided, and it's foolish. Yes, I need to remember who I am in Christ, and then I need to follow Christ in obedience. 1 Corinthians 9.25, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Another translation, I pummel my body and make it a slave. This is what the fight of faith looks like. On the vivification side, we can look at a number of spiritual disciplines. I'll just hit two. Uh, first, regular Bible intake. Uh, you see the Bible reading plan there in your, in your bulletin. Maybe this is your year. To get through the whole Bible in a year. I'll confess, I, I set my mind to it and it took me two years. That's okay. It's all about just regularly being in the Word, right? Uh, scripture is our spiritual food. If you don't regularly take it in, 
you will become weak and dim-witted. That, that's just what happens. Uh, we're, we are swimming in worldliness here. We've got to be in the Word. So you, what does that look like, practically speaking? Well, you've got to carve out a sacred space in your home where, where you do this. Uh, for Danielle and I, it's our dining room table before anybody else gets up. It's free of distractions. Uh, we, we try to think through all the creature comforts we might need. If your feet get cold, get some slippers. Get a cup of coffee. Get a pen and a Bible and a journal and put it there on the table so it's waiting for you. Do it the night before. Um, I just have to set, I have to kind of get violent with myself to make it happen, you know. <clears throat> you sit down in the morning, you read a passage, you meditate on it, and then tell God everything. Just pour out your heart. Have you ever had the experience where you have an anxiety and it just kind of stays there for three or four days and then it hits you? Why haven't I, why haven't I talked to God about this? I, I am a beloved son of the king. He wants to hear this. I need to talk to him. So that prayer ought to be a spiritual reflex. You got an anxiety that crosses your mind? Go to God in prayer immediately. Take baby steps with this stuff. Maybe it's 15 minutes, 10 minutes of reading the word, five minutes in prayer responding to what you just read. I have a strong hunch that if you start doing that, 15 minutes is not going to be enough. You're going to like, well, I've been here an hour. I can't believe it. Wow. <clears throat> Commune with God. Linger over his word. Talk to him. Practice these things. And if you've never had this kind of daily time with God, a lot of us here call it our quiet time. That's the kind of the lingo we use. If you don't know what that's all about, ask a friend here what they do. What's their routine? What are you reading? How often? How much? Can you sit down with me and just show me? Daniel mentioned a journal. What are you supposed to write in that? Disciple one another in these things. Secondly, fellowship. Fellowship. We need each other far more than we realize. That's why attendance matters. We're not trying to fill seats. We're trying to build one another up in the faith. So this year, determine to faithfully walk out your membership by being here. I know people go on vacation. I know people get sick. But we'd like to see you here more often than not. And I guess technically speaking, that would be 51% of the time, which sounds atrocious. Like shoot for 75% of the time, right? And, and connected to fellowship, God has given you gifts. And they're not really for you, right? They're, God has given you gifts for the sake of other people. In 2 Timothy, Paul says, fan into flame the gift of God that is in you. You've got to use it. And, and here he says in verse 14, do not neglect the gift you have. So when you, come to, when, when you don't come to church, when you skip out on care group, we miss the spiritual benefit of your presence. Because you have a ministry here. You have work to do that God's called you to do. Well, in conclusion, we, we had a little frame uh, hanging on the wall in my house growing up that said, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. For me to live is Christ. So friends, we will be celebrating New Year's Day 2018 before we even know it. This year ahead of us is a gift from God for the glory of God. What are you going to do with it? What changes do you need to make? How will you train yourself for godliness? Let's pray and ask for God's help.